We've had uh, a, a really a great time this weekend and uh, just had uh, being poured into by our special guest, Dr. Brown, and, and what he's imparted to us and the excitement to be strengthened, to be vessels of honor for the Lord so that we can take what he's put in us and, and begin to share it with other people. How many of you know that the world needs Jesus, right? And you're carriers, so we need to bring that presence wherever we're at into, into reality, to manifest him. That's what he's asking us to do, to bring him and to wear him well. And so this morning, uh, we want to introduce our speaker, Dr. Michael Brown. He's the founder and president of the Fire School of Ministry in Concord, North Carolina, director of the Coalition of Conscience, and host of the daily nationally syndicated talk show, The Line of Fire, as well a host of the Apologetics TV show, Answering Your Tough Questions. He holds a PhD in near English, I'm sorry, <laughs> near English, <laughs> nearly English language, <laughs> near Eastern languages and literatures from New York University. He's written over 30 books and contributed to numerous articles and scholarly publications. Uh, a man of God, a theologian, and a man on fire, a man on fire for Jesus. And so we praise him, praise the Lord Jesus for him. And uh, let's open our hearts to what Dr. Brown has to share with us. A very serious message, very timely for us to discern the times and know what to do as a people who hold the fire of God in us, who trust for the fire of God. And uh, so uh, without further ado, Dr. Brown, please come. You know, with uh, today being the day that you, you uh, moved the clock ahead, uh, I remember teaching Sunday school class, and uh, there were folks that never, ever, ever, in, as far as I knew in the history of the church, had come to, to Sunday school. And it was one of those Sundays when, you know, you moved the clock ahead, and they got the time wrong. So they showed up for the uh, Sunday school, and they made it as if they were always planning on being there. <laughs> But I remember distinctly when I was a fairly new believer because we taught and emphasized that Jesus could be coming any moment and you had to be ready that any second he could be coming and that all the prophecies were lining up and all this. So um, I show up, whatever it was, you know, early, late with the hour, but I show up for a service and there's no one at the building. And uh, I thought, oh, no, I missed the rapture. <laughs> but it's just the podcast said. So all of you that are here... Great to, great to see you. And um, I remember being in Phoenix, Arizona, and, and my favorite Sunday of the year is, is in the fall when we gain an extra hour. You know, the, and I was in Phoenix and thinking, this cool, you know, I get an extra hour to stay up or to sleep, whatever. But they don't change the clock in Phoenix. Sometimes we're two hours different than them and sometimes three hours different. So if that's a big Sunday to you, don't be in Phoenix on that Saturday night. Uh, probably... You've had guest speakers here, and no one has ever shared that piece of wisdom. So first time ever, adding to our first things here in the services. All right, uh, it is a delight to be with you. How many folks were with us either yesterday, day, or night? Okay, many of you. For everyone else, so good to meet you. I, I believe I'm going to be speaking one message in the first service and another in the second service. We shall see. But 
Uh, those that want to stick around will, will probably go in a different direction in the second service. And there, there are two books. One of them is out. One's about to come out that I'll, I'll mention in the context of the message. Uh, this one, Authentic Fire, you can leave with this today. In, in fact, you'll really want to. And this one, which comes out in just a few weeks, Playing with Holy Fire. You may have heard again that I'm the president of Fire School of Ministry. My radio show is Line of Fire. Fire is obviously a theme of great importance to me. God himself is a refiner's fire, a holy fire. We're going to talk about that fire today. Uh, one, one quick question for you. How many of you are on social media? Facebook? Twitter? Okay, YouTube? All right. How many of you don't know what social media is? Your lives are probably a little bit simpler. God bless you, man. Good job. Uh, let me encourage you to connect with us. Do you ever get frustrated reading the news or watching the news or like you're burdened and the people are not expressing what you're feeling? Uh, every day on the radio, I'm introduced as your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. And what I find as I travel, many people come up to me and say, thank you for being my voice. In other words, the things they're burdened with, we're addressing. The things you're seeing in the news, we're talking about on a radio show. We're writing, uh, wrote an article while flying out on Friday night, uh, which just went live this morning, called, uh, I woke up one day and the whole world had gone crazy. And I give you explanations for what I'm talking about, but you'll read it and feel the same way. So if you connect with us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, we can be your voice. Uh, I normally write between four and five new articles every week, and we put out probably between five and seven new videos every week. Our daily radio show airs live. You can also watch it on YouTube or Facebook. So just jot down my website. Make sure you have it. It's askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. Org. Jot that down. If you sign up for our emails, we've got a great free ebook to send you on how to pray for America. So that'll be a blessing to you. And then every week we'll say, here, latest articles, videos. And when you're there, if you want, just connect with us, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, whatever. Connect with us there, and we can be a blessing to you 24-7. All the materials and resources are free, and this, this enables us to bless you, and then you can share this with others. Just one little warning, though. Not everyone likes me. It's hard to, a nice guy like me, it's very hard to understand. Not everyone likes me. So just a warning in advance. When you start sharing some of my stuff, I'm, I'm, I'm being very serious with you. You're going to get some arrows coming back your way. You're going to find out that not all your friends hold to your values. But this is a good way that together we can get a message out to impact the culture. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name. Give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying. May your Word come alive with holy truth that burns in us and changes us so we can go out by your Spirit and make an impact on the world around us. Speak to us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Samuel chapter 6. David brings the ark back to Jerusalem. And there are a couple of major lessons to learn from this text, 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. And remember, in 1 Samuel, we have the story of what happened when the children of Israel brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them against the Philistines. They were losing. They thought this would give them hope if God is in their midst. But because they were in sin... 
bringing the ark with them didn't do any good. They were defeated, and the ark was taken into captivity in Philistine territory, which is a disaster, a defiling of something holy and sacred from the Lord, but also a lesson that you can't play games with God, that you can't just push a magical button and have the favor and blessing of God, that if our lives are not right with him, that if we are playing games with holy things, we will suffer the consequences. But because the ark of God is holy, God also vindicated his own name. And you know the story that, that he brings judgment on the Philistine gods and, and judges the people that, that play games with the ark, and they finally realize, okay, we, we better let this thing go. But ultimately, the ark is returned to the people of Israel, but it's not in Jerusalem, and David knows I've got to bring it back to Jerusalem. So David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs, and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. They had gone for it. And we'll see later in the account how exuberant David was in his praise. Now when he came to the threshing floor of Nachon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Utsa because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Utsa, And to this day, the place is called Peretz Utsa, which means the breaking forth of Utsa. This is something extraordinary. Here you have a situation where the children of Israel are seeking to bring back the ark of God. They want to honor God, and they want the ark to be back in the tabernacle in Jerusalem as it is supposed to be. And yet, this one man who's trying to do the right thing, who, who wants to steady the ark, he doesn't want the thing broken or shattered or falling out, he grabs hold of it, and he drops dead. God strikes him. Why? Because you are not allowed to touch the ark. Because the ark of God was holy, and God needed to communicate the reality of that to the people of Israel. That you don't mess with holy and sacred things. When you read some of the instructions to the priests of Israel in the book of Exodus, and in the book of Leviticus, you'll be reading, don't do this, don't do this, lest you die. You ever put something together? you know, some electronic toy or something like that, or something that you have to plug in, and then you know, you're reading a warning danger. You know, picture you're putting this thing together, and it says, don't, make, make sure you don't put part A in part B, otherwise you'll die. I'll tell you what, I'm just going to put that thing down and let somebody else mess with it. The children of Israel had become familiar with holy things. The children of Israel did not recognize that God meant what he said in his law. And this is what often happens with holy things. When you look back at the history of Israel, when you look back at the building of the tabernacle, and, and God 
manifesting his presence there. He was making clear to them, this is a place in which my presence will dwell. This is a place of separation. Now think of this. Moses and Aaron offer up the sacrifices that God required. When you read through Leviticus 7 and 8 and 9, and it's the requirements for the priests and the sacrifices and all of this, and each line, and they did as the Lord commanded Moses, and they did as the Lord commanded Moses, as the Lord commanded Moses, as the Lord commanded, they did. They did. Obedience, obedience, obedience. And then God says, all right, before the tabernacle is dedicated, seven days, seven days of waiting. Think of that. You just have to wait before God. How much soul searching do you do? How much meditating on the fact? Look, look, these were the only priests, the high priests and the sons of the one true God in the whole world. The ones that recognized who he was and now had access to him in a unique way. And you come to the end of Leviticus, the ninth chapter, and what does it tell us? It tells us then that they offered up the sacrifices that God had commanded, and fire comes forth from the presence of God. Many years ago, I used to think in terms of fire coming down from heaven, but it's most likely coming out from the tabernacle, from God's presence in the holiest place of all, comes out from the presence of God and consumes Aaron's sacrifices. And all the people fall on their face and shout to God. Wow, what a moment. And if you keep reading, there's no break in the Hebrew. The narrative just continues into the next chapter, into the 10th chapter. And the best understanding is this is the next thing that happens, that Aaron's two oldest sons, Nadav and Avihu, they're obviously excited and caught up in the moment. It's also possible, based on some other texts, that they drank too much wine. Either way, they come and offer up unauthorized fire. It's unauthorized incense, but literally fire. Unauthorized incense to God, contrary to the Lord's command. Boom, it's jarring. After chapter after chapter saying, as the Lord commanded Moses, as the Lord commanded Moses, the Lord commanded Moses, you have these words, not what the Lord commanded Moses. Boom! And what happens to them? The same fire comes forward from the same presence of God and consumes them. First, the fire of God consumes Aaron's sacrifices offered in obedience. Then the fire of God comes and consumes Aaron's sons acting in disobedience. And God was saying, do not play with holy things. Shouting it out to the nation. Now fast forward hundreds of years later, almost a thousand years later, fast forward, and and you have in the days of King Josiah, as he's raised up as a young man at the age of eight, and begins to see the abominations taking place in the temple there. And his grandfather, Manasseh, had been a godless man. Even though he repented at the end of his life, he had been a godless man and engaged in child sacrifice and other horrific practices. It says that at the very temple in Jerusalem, every kind of abomination was taking place. You had the worship of all kinds of idols. You had women weaving for the goddess Asherah. You had homosexual prostitutes. This was in the temple in Jerusalem You say, well, where is the wrath? Where is the fire? What happened? Well, the answer is simple. That when God was very near in those early, pristine, pure days, God instantly dealt with sin and violation. But as the people became more lackadaisical, as they became more worldly, as they became more complacent, 
God's presence withdrew and withdrew until finally he completely withdrew from the place and just destroyed it all. Instead of one person or two people like Nadav and Abihu dying or one man dying here like, like Utsa, instead the whole nation goes into exile. Instead, the whole temple is destroyed. Instead, thousands of people die. It's not that God's holy standards changed. It's not that his judgment changed. It's just that when he was near and there was that intimacy and that pristine purity at the beginning, just like a beautiful bridal gown straight out of the shop and suddenly there's a a spot on it, a piece of dirt or spill of coffee, it's glaring, it's giant. But if you got somebody who's a construction worker and they spill coffee on the clothes, can't even see it because the clothes are filthy. But the holiness of God doesn't change. And, and, and something has happened to us as Pentecostal charismatic people that in our origins, in our earliest stages, we were a holiness movement. I don't mean just in the book of Acts and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and, and the death of Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Holy Spirit. That's a perfect example. When something's fresh and new, sin is dealt with and judged. No, not just then, but, but, but I mean 100 plus years ago, the whole modern Pentecostal outpouring in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, it came out of a holiness movement. In fact, the early Pentecostal leaders used to believe that unless you had been sanctified, you couldn't be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That unless you had been set apart to God and holy and, and had prayed through and come to a place of sanctification, you couldn't be baptized in the Spirit. And if there was someone claiming to be baptized in the Spirit who didn't have a demonstration of the love of God and the holiness of God, you would question whether it was the Holy Spirit. And over the years, instead, Charismatics and Pentecostals have become famous for the worst scandals of all, for the worst sexual scandals of all, for the worst monetary scandals of all. You you think of those that are considered frauds, you think of the word televangelist, but in the negative sense of the word, And what do you think of? You think of financial fraud, you think of sexual fraud, and a lot of the leaders are charismatic Pentecostal. How in the world did we get to that place? Let me give you a little history, and then we'll come back to 2 Samuel chapter 6. And by the way, for those of you who have not figured it out yet, I am not famous for what you call the pep talk gospel. I am not famous for just building people's ego up and making you feel better about yourself. In fact, one of the greatest ways to get whole before God is recognize how desperately you need him and come to him in a place of brokenness out of which he builds something beautiful and glorious in our lives. So, as someone saved in a Pentecostal church, Italian Pentecostal church in 1971 as a heavy drug user saved and delivered there, it was a great environment for me because these were praying people and we had services several days a week and I learned to just get in the word and pray, share my faith. In fact, I was with my old friend, my my old best friend. He got saved right before me. We were best men in each other's weddings. And then he'd been away from the Lord for many years. And we, we renewed contact recently and just reaching out to one another again. And he was reminding me that in the church in which we both got saved, the pastor was talking about you always try to talk to people about Jesus. And they want to talk about apples, you talk about Jesus. They want to talk about oranges, you talk about Jesus. And he said, Mike, you were infamous in the high school. People would see you walking down the hallway. Remember, I I had been a notorious sinner. 
I had been known as drug bear and iron man because I was such a crazy drug user before I was saved. And the first service I attended at that church, one of the young ladies who knew me from high school wrote in her journal, Antichrist comes to church. I was not just a drug user. I was a wicked, rebellious kid. I was notorious in my high school for being a crazy drug user. Now I'm radically saved. And my, my, my old friend reminded me, he said, yeah, when you would come walking down the hallway, people would walk the other way. He said, because they wanted to talk about oranges or apples, but you were going to talk about Jesus. And I remember, you know, going every day I'd look for a new person to share the gospel with in the school. And one day I just sat down at, at the lunch table with someone, and I said to him, can I talk to you? He goes, no, and walked away. I didn't even say what it was about. No, and he walked away. But, of course, many came to faith. Many came to hear the gospel. But it was a great environment for me to be saved in because it was, it was so totally different from everything I was part of. I mean, I, I used to be into the whole rock scene. I saw Jimi Hendrix in concert when I was 13, and that was part of opening the door to me, getting in the whole drug scene and all that. All the famous bands I'd seen concert after concert. We'd play with our band in the day, practice with our band. I was a drummer, and then go to concerts as often as we could. That's what I lived for, drugs and rock music. Now I'm in this little church, maybe 50, 60 people, most services, and, and we've got the pastor's wife playing piano, and we're singing these little ditty hymns. I mean, I'm going from dazed and, Led Zeppelin dazed and confused, and the music's so loud, the building's shaking, and Jimi Hendrix, Purple Haze, you know, and Grateful Dead, Friend of the Devil is a friend of mine, and now, make me a blessing, softly and tenderly, Jesus is... There's within my heart a melody. And this is, I mean, it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You know, just, and, and I was full of joy and loving every second and couldn't wait to get to services. And, and you know, I'd given myself totally to drugs and rock music. You know, I gave myself totally to the Lord. And this church also just practiced total, total abstinence. I thought, well, that works for me because I've got no interest in drinking, you know, and I've got drugs are out of my life. So it was a good environment for, to be, for me to be in. But over a period of years, I began to see some things, and I started to become skeptical. Oh, I had seen God heal. I had been filled with the Spirit and spoke in tongues. I'd seen some very genuine prophetic words that were undeniably God. And yet I began to question things, and I began to see some flaky things, and I began to question some of what we believed. And now I was in college, and now in grad school, and I was surrounded by people who had very different beliefs. And the more I was studying what other Christians believed, I realized, wow, my views are really in the tiny minority here. And, and wow, most of the scholars, they, they don't believe what I believe. And how come they have different views? And it started to influence me and, and shift some of my thinking. And I ended up actually trying to rebel against some of these Pentecostal charismatic roots. I, I read books against the charismatic movement. I read, I, 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 I read books against tongues and miracles, but, but I thought, man, these arguments are weak arguments. Even trying to argue against it, I couldn't. You know, the word was just too clear. And when I would really press into God in prayer and, and experience the spirit afresh, I said, okay, I know these things are real, but I don't believe what I see on TV and a lot of these guys, they're, they're frauds. I mean, that's kind of what I concluded. And then God got hold of me in 82, and the fire of God fell afresh in my life, and, and I had this tremendous outpouring of the spirit in my own life, which then came to the church. I was in another church then. Barely charismatic. I was an elder. And the fire of God fell in that church, and we had an outpouring that lasted several months. And then after that, God called me on. It was dramatic. It was incredible. It was intense. And I, and I, I experienced the reality of what happens when the Holy Spirit's poured out. 
and, and I saw the, the holiness of God's presence as, as, as repentance came to people on a very intense level. They encountered God, and some were overwhelmed for days, weeping before God and getting set free from every kind of sin and filled with the Spirit and speaking in tongues. It felt like a dream. And then God called me out to begin to teach and preach and minister widely in Pentecostal charismatic circles, to teach at a well-known Bible school, to preach at some of the key churches. And God put this wake-up call in my heart, wake-up message in my heart. And I started to write book after book about this. And in 1991, I wrote a book called Whatever Happened to the Power of God? Is the charismatic church slain in the spirit or down for the count? And I talked about the the holiness of God, and have we lost sight of the holiness of God? Come on, we're supposed to be Holy Spirit people. Not the Hollywood Spirit, not the happy Spirit, the the Holy Spirit. We of all people should be marked by a reverence for God. We of all people should be marked by a reverence for the Word. We of all people should be marked, if we're going to make these claims about being Holy Spirit people and having experienced the power and intimacy of the Spirit in a unique way, it should show in a changed life. It should show in godly character. So I wrote a book, Whatever Happened to the Power of God, and and I talked about, you know, with all of our boasting and all of our big claims, how much are we actually seeing? And we began to hear from people in in different parts of the world thanking me for writing the book because you know the story of the emperor's new clothes. You know, that, that, that people see something's missing, but they're all afraid to say it. And then once someone says it, they begin to say, yeah, something is missing. Yeah, we've experienced God, we know this is real, but we know there must be more. And this became part of a, of a burning fire in me that had been growing since God got hold of me in 82, 83. It had been growing and intensifying and leading to prayer and fasting and crying out for a fresh wave of revival, for a fresh outpouring of the Spirit, because I knew there had to be more. And then God brought me right into the midst of the Brownsville revival, and I served as a leader there. And I watched day in, day out for years, God come in power. I mean, you have to imagine the environment you're living in. The main building seated about 2,000 people with extra seats in the front. Then we had an overflow building that seated another 700. We ended up building another building that seated another 2,000. But but picture this environment. There's so much hunger and thirst for God that you have to make a rule that no one can get online before 6 in the morning for the service that starts at 7 at night. Because people would leave the service at night that would end at 1 or 2 in the morning, go get a bite to eat, and then come with sleeping bags and start camping out in the parking lot so that they get a good seat for the service the next night. And the the church leaders said, you know, we we don't feel good. There's no security there. So we'll have security there beginning at 6 a.m. So you can't get online before 6. And and pastors would tell me, yeah, we showed up. We drove down from Chicago to Pensacola. We flew in from here, and we thought we'll get there nice and early. And we show up at 6.15, and the, the line is already a block and a half long. This went on for years. It's almost unimaginable. People hungry and thirsty. People getting saved in the parking lot. I was doing a talk at a university the other day on on the word of God and God's love and gay and lesbian issues and people. And and a guy came up to me. He said, hey, I I lead the house of prayer in the city here. He said, I'm one of your grads from Pensacola. I remembered his face. He said, you know, I got saved in the parking lot. He was one of those that, that encountered God. The conviction was so heavy. People sometimes just fall on their knees weeping and get right with God. 
So they'd stand online for 12 hours, and then the doors would open, and then, then there'd be another hour before the service would start, and then the service would go five or six hours. This went on night in, night out, several nights a week, four or five nights a week for years. We lived in the midst of it. I'm, a, I'm an eyewitness to what God did during that time. And, and we had a, a holy reverence for the things of God. We, we had a recognition that, that you don't mess with things, that, that this is a sacred move of God. And although God's our loving Father, He's a compassionate Father, He's kind, He's merciful. And Jesus says, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. And Jesus says, look at me, I'm, I'm meek and lowly in heart. There's an extraordinary tenderness in God. And, and the Old Testament says God is our shepherd. The New Testament says Jesus is our good shepherd and great shepherd. And the shepherd cares for the sheep. At the same time, there's, there's a reverent awe because he's a holy God. Deuteronomy 4.24 says our God is a consuming fire. And that's quoted in Hebrews 12.29. Our God is a consuming fire. Same God. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The blood of Jesus doesn't change the nature and character of God. It changes us. And it pays the price so we can have access to God, but it doesn't cheapen the holiness of God. It doesn't suddenly get us into this place where anything goes. You ever hear someone receive an award or something like that, you know, a Grammy or an Oscar, and they'll say, I just want to thank the man upstairs. You know that person's not saved. I mean, there could be an exception, but generally speaking, when you know God, you don't refer to him as the man upstairs. And you'll have all these people talking about they had this encounter with God or God came in their room and they're so miserably casual about it, I have to wonder. I mean, there is no one on earth that was closer to Jesus than John, the disciple. And yet in Revelation 1, when Jesus appears in his glory, John falls to his face like somebody dead. Isaiah is undone, woe is me, when he's in the presence of a holy God. It makes sense, it's natural. We're overwhelmed because of his glory and power. In the midst of the revival, I remember one service. I don't remember Steve Hill, the evangelist, ever doing this before or after. And all the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of services we were in. He gave a warning to someone there that if they didn't get right with God, they were going to die in a serious accident. He didn't play games with hype and emotion. Oh, he stirred you. And he called you to run to the altar and get right with God, but he didn't play emotional tricks with people. He had that serious warning, and I remember it got our attention because it was so unusual. Some weeks later, he gets an email and he shows it to us. He's kind of shaking over it. A young lady wanted him to hear the story. She said, I came with my friend. We weren't saved. We weren't believers. I came with my friend. We were, you know, partying, bar drinking people. I came with my friend. And we both responded to the altar call to get right with God. And that's the night that Steve Hill gave that warning that if you don't get right with God, you're going to die in a serious accident. And she said, well, my life was radically changed. But he quickly went back to his old ways. He started living differently. He went back with his old ways. She said, I just want you to know I just came from his funeral. I mean, this was maybe two weeks later. He just got killed. He was at the bar, left the bar, and, and smashed his car going 100 miles an hour, kind of on one of these back streets. I don't know how he's going that fast. Totally destroyed the car. He's dead. You know, that's the kind of thing you hear. We're all shaking over that. Oh, my God. One of these intense warnings that wasn't heeded. Well, as the years went on, after Brownsville Revival, birthed our own ministry out of that, our ministry school that, that sends laborers around the world and plants schools around the world. And, and I'm working with many fine people, some of the finest people I've ever met on the planet. 
Men and women of integrity, men and women of faith, men and women of character, men and women of the Spirit. Wonderful, wonderful people around the world. And yet, you continue to see the abuses, the latest sexual scandal, the the latest carnal thing. I was talking to one guy in TV ministry. I said, man, how do you put up with this stuff? The the carnal fundraising. That's the worst stuff I've ever seen. I remember there was a a Christian uh, network that had me on doing a show for them. Great folks at this network, and it was a Jewish outreach show that they produced and we put tons of effort into. They're now airing, those shows are now airing in Israel with Hebrew captions to reach Jewish people. And, and one night I decided to flip the, the channel on to see who's on. And there's a guy preaching a passionate message, passionate message about the Garden of Gethsemane. And I'd seen this guy on before as a fundraiser. And I said, God, please, don't tell me. Don't tell me he's going to turn the Garden of Gethsemane into a fundraiser. And sure enough, it goes from the agony of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to some pitch to send in an offering for a certain amount so that you'll get like a supernatural Easter anointing. And I was so grieved, I shut that thing off. I said, how can I even be on that network? I went to talk to leaders about it. It ended up we, we had to stop the show because they didn't have funding for it with a, a new program that they were in. They had to stop all new programming. But I said, I, I, can't be, I can't be part of that. Even though the people involved with the ministry were great people and, and they had some great shows, like, that, that's crazy. That's corrupt. That's manipulation. That's taking advantage of God's people. That's taking sacred things and making them crass and profane. And I don't care how many people lined up with testimonies that God blessed them for giving. All that would mean is that God blessed their sincerity and their naivete because they were trying to honor the Lord. That stuff is corrupt. But the circles I was in, the people I work with, such fine people, people graduating from our school, going out, laying their lives down for the gospel, incredible people. So when I'd hear about the abuses, it wasn't part of my world. When I'd hear about the things going on that are wrong, it wasn't part of my world. So a few years back, a few years back, someone calls my radio show and said, have you heard about the conference that John MacArthur, Pastor John MacArthur, is holding. I said, no, I haven't. This It's called Strange Fire. So I get online, and, and I begin to, to look at this. It's about five years ago, now four and a half years ago. I begin to look at this and, and see some sound bites of clips from Pastor MacArthur, and I got terribly grieved. I have a world of respect for my brother who's several years older than me. He's not involved in any scandal. He's, he's kept a, a strong testimony of Jesus. If he's ever on secular TV, he never compromised. He, he, he preaches the cross and the lordship of Jesus. Yet over the years, he's, he's written books attacking charismatics in very, very strong terms. Years back, he went after John Wimber and the, the Vineyard Movement. So I began to look at some of these clips, and my heart was grieved. I mean, he was naming by name some friends of mine. Some men of prayer who live holy, godly lives, lives of prayer and fasting, who love the Lord, and and saying that they're worshiping a false god. They're they're dancing around the altar of Baal, Baal's altar, and they're worshiping a golden calf, and my heart was grieved. So I began to reach out openly and write open letters to Pastor MacArthur, urging him to step back from some of this and saying, let's talk in dialogue, and then try to reach out privately. And they had their conference, and, and... Things were really building. I had written so much, so many people had read what I wrote that they, one of the speakers did a whole session just addressing uh, me 
in a gracious way, but saying why he took issue with me and, and there is no baby in the bathwater. The bathwater is so bad and corrupt and miserable and filthy, there is no healthy baby in it at all. I mean, it was extreme. And God stirred me in the midst of this. In the midst of this, I get a burden. He's written a book called Strange Fire, which is coming out a few weeks after the conference. God moves on me, write another book. So this is the book. It's called Authentic Fire. And it was written in response to Strange Fire, not as an attack, written with, written with respect, but to set the record straight and to lay out why we believe what we believe by the Scriptures and to lay out what God himself is doing around the world and to lay out the quality of what God is doing around the world while acknowledging issues and problems. And, and I was moved on supernaturally. I wrote the book in three weeks' time. I wrote over 300 pages in three weeks. Some friends contributed some, some appendixes to it, so the book came out 400-something pages written in three weeks from the day I started writing it to the day the book was published was seven weeks. Just crazy fast. And I began hearing from people that used to be charismatics and Pentecostals and said, you're right, we left because of bad experiences, not because of the Word. But you've convinced us again what the Word says, so we've got to figure out how to put our bad experience behind us and go back to the Word. Fast forward a few years now, and I've written a bunch of other books on a bunch of other subjects, some of them dealing with some doctrinal errors in our movement and things like that. But I'm moving on, writing other things, and interacting with the publisher, and they say, how about this for your next book? I said, no, it doesn't really excite me. How about this for your next book? I said, no, it doesn't really move me. i got to be moved if I'm going to write. And 99% of the time, I'm telling the publishers what I want to write and then finding the right publisher for the book. But I, as I'm talking to them, I said, you know what I want to write about? I want to write a book as an insider, not someone from the outside attacking. I want to write a book as an insider about abuses in our movement. Why? Because God is moving mightily, but if we don't prune the tree, it's not going to grow. Jesus said that, that we are branches of the vine. His father is the, the vine dresser. He's the vine. We're the branches. His father is the vine dresser. And every branch in him that bears fruit, he prunes, he cuts back, that it can bear more fruit. And what happens to the ones that don't bear fruit? He cuts them off. So as one of my friends says, everybody gets the knife. You either get cut back and pruned or you get cut off. I said, you know what I want to do? I want to write a book about abuses and issues in our movement. And this is Charisma Publishers, so famous in the charismatic movement, you know, for Charisma Magazine and, and all of this and being right in the thick of it. They were thrilled with it. In fact, the, the president said to me after the book was written, he said, man, I have a personal interest in getting this out. And that's this book, Playing with Holy Fire. And that's why I bring up the, the ark and the holiness of the ark and the holiness of the things of God. Playing with Holy Fire, a wake-up call to the charismatic Pentecostal church. This is not an attack from an outside critic. And I didn't write this book because of the critics, because the critics will just say, aha, you see, we're right. No, I, I wrote it despite the critics, but I wrote it because God is moving amazingly around the world. But unless we get our house in order, unless we relay holy foundations, unless we get back to the Word of God, Unless, unless we have a fresh appreciation for the power of the Spirit, unless we make room for the Spirit to move, unless we humble ourselves before Him, we will not see the next thing that God wants to do. So this book, this is an advanced copy that I have. This book comes out April 3rd, so just a few weeks from now. And you know what's interesting? Charismatic leaders were lining up to endorse the book. 
It's not like they were saying, we don't want to talk about these things. They were saying, thank God that you wrote it because we see these issues and we know we need to go deeper. What David realized, if he's going to move the ark of God into Jerusalem, he's going to have to do it the right way. The zeal of man trying to grab this thing, you don't do it, you don't touch it. So, the ark of the Lord stays in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. The Lord blesses his entire household. Now, verse 12, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, which is what the priests would do, danced before the Lord with all his might. While he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. This was an exuberant celebration. And, and, and when you read the account in First Chronicles, you know, David's leaping and twirling and maybe snapping his fingers. and it just It's quite a scene. They brought the ark, uh, excuse me, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. And, and they did it this time. They did it the right way. The ark's supposed to be carried on poles. and No one touches it. If you're going to do it, do it the right way. If you're going to give yourself to the things of the Spirit, do it the right way. But here's the other side to it. And what often the critics don't get, being reverent before God and respecting the holy things does not necessarily mean that everything has to be somber. You know how holy we are? You can tell we're holy because we're miserable. We never smile. We have no joyful expression because we are just based on what you cannot do. And we will judge you based on whether you keep our customs because we are holy. That's what a lot of people think of holiness. A lot of people swing into all kinds of worldly liberty because they got burned by, by dead religion. They got burned by legalism. Legalism, which is laws without love and rules without relationship and standards without a savior. Legalism, which is externally imposed religion. It tries to change you from the outside in. You know, one of my friends was talking about the, the holiness circles he grew up in. And, and the women had to do everything in their power, not to look modest, but to look plain and even ugly. You know, that you... You couldn't have a, a modest beauty. No, you, you had to look so plain and, and basically have this miserable look on your face all the time because you were a holiness person. And he said that's why the husbands look so miserable all the time also. I mean, everyone's holiness people. But, but no, it's an amazing thing that David fully recognizing the holiness of the ark doesn't next time, okay, first time he's rejoicing, now Utsa dies. Now this next time it's like, everyone, walk like this quietly. Going back to Jerusalem. Holy, holy, holy. No, he didn't do that. They're celebrating. They're dancing and shouting and spinning and jumping to the point that Michal, his wife, despises him. That's the president of the United States. That's the king of Israel. That's the prime minister of... I mean, that's the leader of the nation. Here. We're in a situation now where our president often does things that are not presidential. And some people may love it, you know, a speech over the weekend. I'm like, oh, gosh, 
And the world may love it, but as a believer, you know, it embarrasses me. Other things he does, I'm thrilled with. You know, moving the embassy to Jerusalem in this May, wonderful. Other things he does, it embarrasses me because that's our president. Now, again, we can get into a debate about that and divide over it. That's not my intent. My intent is to say you can relate to someone that's supposed to be the leader acting in a way that you don't think is appropriate for the leader. And some say, well, I'm glad he's doing that. But as a follower of Jesus, it embarrasses me. And other things I'm thrilled with. And that's, that's every, year, every leader we're going to have is going to be a mixture, right? And he's an extreme mixture. Well, well Michal sees David dancing, the king of Israel. First, he's not fully clothed. It's not that he's dancing naked, but he's, he's not royally clothed. He's not in his royal garments. And he's making a public fool of himself. But, but you see, David also recognized that God's holiness meant joy. And God's holiness meant celebration. And, and that the ark coming, the presence of God coming, was a cause for rejoicing. I, I was never in churches where one of the signs of getting touched by the Spirit was people running. You ever been in churches like that, the, the running churches? <laughs> that, you know, and, uh, now, I preached in some of them, and you're in the service, and suddenly, you know, God starts moving, and you see someone running around the building. And you think, what kind of, what? that's not holy, that's irreverent. Oh, maybe that person just got touched with the reality of Jesus died for you and rose from the dead. And they've known it, but suddenly the reality hits. It's like, woo! And they're running around the building. God's not saying, why are you running in the sanctuary? No. He's not saying, that belongs on the track field, not in the sanctuary. No, he's probably saying, good, at least someone is excited about the resurrection of Jesus. Otherwise, Jesus died and rose from the dead. Amen. So we're holy, we're reverent. And I told some of these critics, I said, for every person that you're criticizing in our midst that's jumping and running around the building, there are 10 in your service sleeping. In the 1750s, 1760s, there was a revival in Wales, and the people were jumping up and down, and the British believers were, were criticizing them, calling them jumpers. And one of, the British lead, one of the Welsh leaders, Daniel Rowland, said, he said, you know, you criticize us and call us jumpers, jumpers. He said, well, we criticize you, sleepers, sleepers. And David sacrifices Offerings, all this blesses the people. And now, verse 20, when David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. There's obviously a natural explanation. He probably wasn't with her physically. But there's also the spiritual application, which that critical spirit doesn't bear fruit that critical spirit that despises people's freedom in the Lord and despises when they humble themselves before God and rejoice. That critical spirit doesn't bear any fruit. There are two major lessons for me from this passage 
for those of us who consider ourselves Pentecostal charismatic for a congregation like this. The first lesson is we, we must recover our respect and reverence for the things of the Spirit. When God begins to pour out a Spirit in revival, when the Holy Spirit begins to sweep through in a meeting, that's very sacred. That's very awesome. And, and, and we knew week in, week out, week in, week out, during the Brownsville revival, that this was a sacred entrustment. And, and you, you knew that there was no written guarantee that this is going to last a year or five years or ten years. So every week the services would be prayer meeting Tuesday night, building packed out people praying on Tuesday night, and then services Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday morning. And then we did day sessions and had our school and things like that. But every Wednesday as the services would remove and God would begin to move, as the services would, would renew and God would begin to move, we'd always have this, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, you're here in our midst. And, and, th and then during, during winter, get into December, and because this was so constant and the, the church workers, most of the people volunteering their time, so they work full-time jobs, they're raising their kids, and then they come at night. So it was just an exhausting schedule. So there was just a break for a few weeks God continued to move in revival, but we took a break from public services just so that people could, could rest a little. Our school still went on for a while, but otherwise the public services would, would just have a break for a little while. And then we'd start up the first of the new year, and, and God's presence would be there. You just, thank you, Lord. That sense of, of awe and, and amazement. And every night we'd pray for people, literally till we were ready to drop, till we were ready to collapse, night in, night out. I'm not exaggerating. But, but we knew... As Leonard Ravenhill, great revivalist, had said shortly before he died, the opportunity of a lifetime must be seized during the lifetime of the opportunity. You don't know how much time you have. You don't know how long the Spirit's going to move like this. Grab hold of it while you can. Grab hold of it while you can. And that's how we lived. And then plus, people had traveled from around the world literally to get there. They came from over 130 nations. So they travel from around the world. And then, then people standing online for 12 hours to get into the meeting. Are we going to tell them at night, sorry, we're tired? So their hunger was there, and, and that met our anticipation, and every night God moving. And that's why you went for it night after night after night after night for years, and then went out from there and preached to others and, and brought the same thing God was doing. We, we need to take hold of that even in our own lives. We can get so casual with our prayer times and casual speaking in tongues and, and casual with reading the Word. Let there be a fresh awakening and sense of reverence. And as God begins to move, don't, don't trivialize it. You used to get stirred to pray one day, go with it. You get stirred to fast, go with it. You feel to separate from certain things, go with it. And ask yourself again, Lord, have I gotten worldly? Have I gotten caught up with the things of the flesh? Have, have I become hardened to holy things? It can happen with any of us. And when we have that fresh encounter with God, suddenly we realize, wow, I'm living in compromise. But there's another side to it. There's always pressure from the world. There's always pressure from, from religion. There's always pressure even from other well-meaning parts of the body to not be so radical, to not be so extreme, to not be so Pentecostal, to not be so into the things of the Spirit. Have a more reasonable faith, a more rational faith, a faith that looks good in the eyes of the world. Listen, you don't win the world by becoming like the world. You win the world by becoming like Jesus. 
And, and, and that's why, and look, I do apologetics, the defense of the faith. The Greek word apologia is, is defense. It's, it's the defense of the faith. I'm constantly in that environment. You know, college campus, like I mentioned, talking about cultural issues. On my radio show every day, talking about controversial issues, writing about what's happening in society around us, and I'm doing it in a rational way. And I'm using my educational background when I'm opening up the scriptures. I've written commentaries on books of the Bible. I, I teach at seminaries. Amen to all of that. At, at the same time, I also realize that I could come up with my great intellectual arguments, 11 proofs on the existence of God, something like that, which is, which is it has its place. I'm not demeaning it. It has its place. And you get some other guy, all he can do is barely read the Bible. You know, his English is really bad. He's full of the Spirit. God's using him in healing and miracles. And you know where the people are going to go flocking? Down the street where that guy's preaching. And you're going to have some atheists that hears you and say, you gave me a lot to think about, but then when they get supernaturally healed as that guy's preaching down the block, they get radically saved. Oh, it's not either or. It's, it's both and. It's mind and spirit. But, but hear me. We cannot try to look sophisticated in the eyes of the world. We cannot try to look sophisticated in the eyes of the church. We must recover our roots, and they are Holy Spirit roots. They are let God be God roots. They are, Lord, we welcome your spirit. We don't welcome human silliness. We don't welcome demonic manifestation. But, Lord, we welcome your spirit. And God's done it in my life over and over and over to say, don't you get proud in the flesh, son. You, you go the way of my spirit, and the world's going to mock it. I'm going to be done in a moment, but here's what's interesting. There are critics in the body today, fellow believers. I, I believe they're well-meaning. I believe they're well-intended, but they don't understand certain aspects of the things of the spirit, where they haven't experienced God in certain ways, and they're scandalized by our responses to him. And these folks are constantly coming after me and attacking me because of my Pentecostal charismatic beliefs. And the other day, I showed some of our students one of the most powerful services I was ever in, in Pensacola. One of the most powerful altar calls I was ever involved with. And I showed them the end of the message in the altar call, and they were just stirred watching it and felt the spirit. It was a few days later, I saw that one of the critics had taken that exact same excerpt and posted it on his YouTube channel to mock me as an extremist. The very thing I was saying, look at this altar call, look at how God moved, look at the intensity of it. They were just mocking that's going to happen, so be it. Even among brothers and sisters, so be it. We want the Lord. And, and if it means being undignified in the eyes of man, but dignified in the eyes of God, so be it. If it means celebrating with freedom that's embarrassing to the flesh, but honoring to the Lord, because we say, I'm just going to be like a child in your presence, so be it. So let us recover our reverence for the holy things of God. And let us recover our exuberance in the Spirit. And, and pray with me as, as, as playing with holy fire comes out next month. I really believe that, that God wants to break forth in our midst in a fresh new way in America. And He's moving around the world in so many ways. I believe He wants to take us deeper. And that means that the tree has to be pruned, that the branches of the vine have to be pruned, that we have to be pruned and as we clean house before God, he can entrust us with more, and we can see a deeper, more powerful move of the Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray for your truth to penetrate our hearts and minds. I pray, oh God, that we would have a fresh new reverence for your holiness and your Holy Spirit. 
and at the same time a fresh new freedom to rejoice in you and to experience your goodness and power. In Jesus' name, amen.